is Bad Boys and Beyond with your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. The game's over and the Pistons have won the world championship. Superstar Isaiah Thomas is used to having things his own way. But not today. Very happy to play that video. Uh, very happy to have our guest today, ladies and gentlemen. Number eleven, the legend himself. Two championships for the, this man brought to our town, Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, you're welcome, and thank you. And and watching that video, you you're talking about eating some some humble pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll head your number that day for sure. <laughs> Swat my stuff all over the place, <laughs> and then, uh, and then he wanted to do a couple of takes, a couple <laughs> of takes, just you know, just to make sure he got it. And then I was like, "Wait a minute, man, are you, are you just trying to like you know really like you know, really humiliate me here?" <laughs> do Do you have any uh, that, that that actually leads us to our first question as. Do you have any recollection of of how that came about and and what that was like shooting on that uh, set that day? Uh, you know, he he was a fan of of the Bad Boys. He was a fan of uh, you know, the Pistons and and myself and and you know, they called the office and and asked me if I would, would want to participate in in one of his shows and of course I said yes and that, that's how it happened. But the show I always wanted to be on, I always wanted to be on Martin, you know. <laughs> I, I wanted to be a regular on Martin. I thought I would have been good. <laughs> yeah, it was set in Detroit. You should have totally been on there. That would have been yeah. Awesome. yeah. Or you could have been on uh, uh, Living Single like Grant did and, and and sing. I don't know if you can sing like Grant can. No, I can't. No, I <laughs> but but I, I I can't sing like Grant because Grant can play the piano a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you. That. That. There is no one who tries harder than me to be a singer. <laughs> no, I, I, I definitely uh, am in that same boat. Um, but yeah, let's. Uh, I, I want to take it, take it back to your, to your college days. You played for the legendary Bobby Knight, and uh, I'm curious, you know, what that was like, because Bobby, you know, has sort of a reputation um, as being a hard nosed coach, and and maybe, um, maybe a little too hard on his players, at least in today's you know uh today's generation might think that i don't know if bobby could coach today or not but what was it like playing playing for bobby and and did he was he hard on you he he was hard on us but he was hard on on the fundamentals and he was hard on doing things right and you know when you're 17 18 years old who wants to do things right <laughs> you know and and so that made that that gave him the reputation of being a disciplinarian 
but he was no different than your mom or your dad who, who wanted you to do things right, like go to school, really do your homework, like for real, like nobody's doing it for you. Like you got to do it yourself. You know, you got to be on time. You got to come to practice. You got to practice hard. Oh, and you got to be in shape. You know, you know all the things that you don't want to do, he was making you do. And consequently, you know, for whatever reason, he, he got this reputation as being a stern, tough disciplinarian. But if you look at the way basketball is played today, where everybody's talking about reading and reacting, you know, um, playing with, with, with perfect randomness, no play calls. That's the way we play basketball at Indiana. The most freedom I had, right, was playing at Indiana. We never, we never had a, a out-of-bounds play, an under-out-of-bounds play, a side-out-of-bounds play. It was about getting to know your teammate and understand what he will and won't do. And that, you know, it, and it takes, it takes an incredible amount of teaching and trust in what you're teaching to get your players to play that way. Uh, when I got into the NBA, how about this? My high school coach and my, my college coach Indi at, at uh, Indiana, Coach Knight, uh, never had a play. The first time I ran a pick and roll is when I was in the NBA. Really? I, that was the first time I ran a pick in and roll. Indiana, in Indiana, you never ran a pick and roll? Never ran a pick and roll. Wow. My two at Indiana University. Didn't that even. Is, now, that is crazy. That, that, is, that is. It was, it was read, react, pass, uh, screen away. You know, what's, what's the, the way people are playing now in the NBA, the way the Golden State Warriors, the Sacramento Kings, and everybody's like up tempo, so forth and so on. Uh, that's how that's how people are playing. And, uh, you know, he he should get a lot of credit for the style of play that people are playing today in the NBA. I, I agree with you uh, 100 percent. I I mean, I, I kind of knew that a lot of what, what Bobby Knight's offenses were were way, way ahead of their time. And, and a lot of that trickled into the game we, we know today. I didn't realize to what extent, though. That that's that's really interesting. All right. Uh, so speaking of uh, coming to the NBA, and I want to draw some parallels here. Uh, the the Pistons were coming off uh, seasons they lost sixty six and sixty one games. Uh, you're, you're you're coming into a team. Uh, Scotty Robinson's the coach. Uh, of course, John Long and Terry Tyler are already there. Uh, you you came in with Kelly Trapuca. Uh, but I, by the end of the season, Jack didn't waste any time. By the end of the season, Bill and Vinny were already there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but I, I just want to, if you could elaborate on the challenges of what you faced those first couple of years when you were, when you, you, you guys weren't terrible at all. You, you were competitive, but you didn't make the playoffs. And just the challenges of establishing a winning culture where there was none before. Uh, I, I had never been in a, in a losing culture. So I, I didn't know what a losing culture felt like or had experienced it. You know, in grade school, high school, college, I always won and was a big part of winning. So I, I knew when I, when I got to Detroit, there were some things missing, um, like discipline, like being in shape, <laughs> um, you know, all the, all the fundamental things that you needed to have uh, to, 
to have a, a good environment to make the team win or to help the team win. Uh, but I knew we didn't have the talent that Boston or LA had. Uh, so the, the first thing to do, the first thing I tried to do was, you know, hold on to my beliefs that we could actually win here and then try to convince others that we can win here. And, you know, believing that you can win, that's really the first step. I mean, and, and now you, you, you look at how long will it take? And, and then you, you set about doing it. But, you know, I was so fortunate to have Jack McCloskey as a general manager, Bill Davison as an owner. Eventually we got, you know, Chuck Daly came along. But when you talk about Bill and, and, and Vinny, John Long, Terry Tyler, you know, I was fortunate enough in my rookie season to be able to play with some of those guys because uh, while we didn't, again, have the talent of L.A. or Boston, there was a commonality of, you know, if we believe and we do the right things and we execute our game plan, at least we can stay in the game. But if we just go wild and, you know, start playing, we, we're going to get blown out. But if we if we stay structured and, and disciplined, we got a chance to at least play with those teams. But at the end, we knew their talent was greater than ours. Yeah, that, that word uh, keeps coming up, a uh, discipline. Both, both from what you described from uh, within yourself and from a team perspective. So that would be, I, I guess that would be what you would consider to be the most important thing in trying to turn everything around is just staying disciplined. Uh, I would say believability. So I, I, I would say belief, discipline and sacrifice, right? And then on top of that, fourth thing I would put is trust. Uh, so th those four things, belief, uh, sacrifice, trust, uh, you know, discipline. Those are the four things that you that you really need uh, to to have a you know a successful environment. Uh, you know, the the trust factor comes from the belief, right? You, because you you as a I I didn't I didn't come in my rookie year asking to be the captain, but I was elected captain, and I was elected captain by grown men. <laughs> you know, um, so they believed in me. So consequently, there was a trust factor that that needed to be established from a work ethic standpoint. So the discipline and sacrifice that you needed to show uh, so they can continue to have trust and belief in you uh, throughout the years was important. Now, now I know you, you, you've said in the past and I, and I kind of want to stay in your rookie year here. Uh, you've said in the past that you you, didn't, you wanted to play for Chicago. You wanted to play for your hometown team. Every, everybody does. Everybody yeah. wants to play. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious how 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 do you think that you and Reggie Theus would have been uh, together as a pair? Because that's who that's probably who you would have been paired up with in the backcourt if you would have been drafted. So, so as a player, uh, and my my belief my belief system is that I believe I could play with anybody anywhere and 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 get in line and and try to figure out how to win. Uh Reggie Reggie and I actually were were friends in Chicago. Uh you know, his family and my family knew each other. Everybody like kind of hung out. So uh I think Reggie and I would have done all right. We'd have done I, and I would have I would have found a way to make it work. All right. 
would have been interesting. <laughs> I'm glad it didn't happen in the end because <laughs> because you came to Detroit. But <laughs> so so I've got a question that uh, you you may have to have to really think about this one because I don't know if anyone's ever brought this up to you before. But uh, Vinny Johnson or Ricky Pierce? Ooh. And, and to, send, to to set the stage for our Ooh. listeners, if you not listen to our Vinny Johnson episode. Uh, Ricky Pierce was the first round draft pick the year uh, following Isaiah. And he was that Jack McCloskey was, was still trying to find that other guard to fit next to Isaiah. And Ricky Pierce was kind of in the same mold as Vinnie Johnson, but Vinnie Johnson decided that he wasn't going to let Ricky have a chance. So he played in every single game, averaged 30 some minutes and Ricky Pierce never saw the floor. And Jack made the decision to keep Vinnie over Ricky Pierce and Ricky Pierce, to this day, has still scored more points than any former Piston in NBA <laughs> history. And I always wondered how many of those were against you guys because all the games I watched, it seems like he always had like that little extra edge anytime he played against the Pistons. Now, that's my feeling. I, I want to know if you felt the same way. That is a great question. That's the only time next question has been asked. And Now, can you imagine Ricky Pierce and Vinny Johnson in practice? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and during that time, so we had Ricky Pierce, Vinnie Johnson, John Long, myself, and I think Terry Teagle was on that team also for a minute, you know? Yeah. I mean, unbelievable guards, Uh, but, but Ricky, he, he was tough, you know, he was, he was a bull and, and Vinnie, you know, the only thing that I think Vinnie, had over him was that Vinny could handle the ball. And and that was the that was the key that I, I think Jack saw that 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 separated those two. But in terms of scoring, uh Ricky could score. He's a good foul shooter. Vinny could score. But you know Vinny could play on and off the ball, which is what I think Jack wanted in in in, in guards. But you know Ricky Pierce, that was um Man, that's a great question. And and he was, every time he saw us, I think he probably averaged about 23 to 24 points a night against us. I mean, he he was good in every yeah, way. It, it's such a weird thing because people always think about Vinnie Johnson as being one of the signature six men of all time. And then they'll ask, well, how come he, if he was so great, how come he never won a six man of the year award? So, because Ricky Pierce was winning them every year. Yeah. I mean, we, Jack McCloskey, I, I tell everybody this, and, and, and you can go back and look it up. Every year that I was there, he drafted a guard. Yeah. Uh, with, with, with the exception of Rodman and Sally draft. But then I think he brought in like free agent guards. And every year I would come to camp, Jack and Chuck were looking at me like, okay, this guy's here to take your spot. And I'm like, Oh, no, he's not. You know, and I'm lacing up with Jewish night and everything else. Um, but every year he drafted guards. So, All right, uh, so okay, I'm sorry, go on, Mike. Yeah, uh, so that kind of leads us to, to the next question of drafting guards. And uh, the, the, the Pistons took Joe Dumars uh, yeah. some years into your tenure with the Pistons. And I'm curious, when did you know that that was the right fit? When did that really start to click and you realize, hey, we, I can win a championship with this guy in the backcourt? You know, it, it it really didn't happen until John Lone got hurt. Um, because 
John Lone was starting and John, you know, John was averaging close to 20, 22 points a night and he could really shoot the basketball. And then Vimy was playing behind John and, and Joe was like the fourth guard. And, you know, in practice, you know, we would, we would sometimes play together, but, you know, for the most part, it was John and I against Vinny and Joe. And, and John Lone got hurt. Uh, he pulled a groin muscle. And, and un, unbeknownst to us, Chuck walked into the locker room and he said, okay, Joe, you're going to start tonight. Uh, Vinny, I want to keep you coming off the bench. And Joe started and it, it really was, it was just like hand and glove. It was like, it was like magic. You know, it was like he and I just really vibed out on the floor. And um, John never got back in the, in the lineup, you know. And there's a story in the NBA that we always heard when we came in. It was, uh, it was actually a baseball story. It's about Wally Pipp. <laughs> and so, so John Lone got Wally Pipp by Joe Dumars. <laughs> and Joe Dumars started every game after that. Yeah, his his second start is one of my favorite games because you guys played the Lakers and the Lakers were something like thirty six and five or something, and you guys beat them. With, yeah, with, Joe had a fantastic game yep. as this rookie playing in his second start. Like you can you can tell like the fact that like he had eleven assists in his second start playing with you. I might add. So yeah, I, I thought that was really the what what made you guys great is that either you could play on or off the ball, like depending on yeah. who had the best matchup. Absolutely. And, and, and I would, I would say Vinny also, because the, the three of us, we understood without even, you know, having to be told, you know, who has the best matchup and that's who we're going to go up to. So all unselfishness and, and willing to sacrifice, right. And not care who got the most points or whatever. It was, it was like, you know, Hey, do your thing. It, It, I like, when we when we finally beat Boston and got past them, if you go back and you look, game five in Boston, I think I had like 35 or 36 points. Yeah. We come to game six to close them out. And Vinny got hot. Guess who's on the bench? <laughs> Me. I, I think I scored nine points that game. I think Joe got 10, 10 or 11. And Vinny in game six, ended up with like 22 or 23 points. But that's just how we yeah. were as people and as players. Yeah, I think that was my my personal favorite thing about Vinny is that he could go so cold for a week and then you'll, you'll have a, an amazing game. And as, as soon as you or Joe needed him to step up because you had an off game, he would, he would come in and it would be like, oh, this guy hasn't missed a shot in two weeks. Like he had that yeah. confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that was the best thing about Vinny was he, he always thought the next one was going in. And every year in training camp, and, Vin, and Vinny will tell you this, every year in training camp, Vinny Johnson was the best guard. He, he, was, he was better than I was in training camp. He was better than Joe Dumars in training camp. And he would always be pissed that he wasn't starting. <laughs> All right. So um, if, if I can go back a year, uh, if you don't mind, uh, that I want to talk about somebody else, uh, Chuck Daly, that 19, yeah. that, that first season with Chuck Daly, 1983, 84, uh, you guys hadn't made the playoffs. 
he he comes in. He was really the, the one major addition that season. And he wasn't even, and I want to make this clear to the to our listeners, he was not the Monty Williams of the he was Jack McCloskey's like he had he uh was like the second or third guy McCloskey asked. He didn't come in with a whole lot of fanfare, but as soon as he came in, he the the team immediately improved. And I wanted you to I wanted to ask you, what do you think that he brought to the table right away? He he brought I, I would say just the the intelligence and the know-how of, of winning. You know, he was a great storyteller. He had been with the 76ers, right? And being with the 76ers with Billy Cunningham, Dr. J, Maurice Cheeks, you know, watching them, you know, having to fight against Boston in Milwaukee every year and and coaching us through all, all downtime and still giving us the, the belief that we, could, that we could one day break through the wall. Um, you know, telling stories of, of being on the bench for Billy Cunningham and, and watching Dr. J struggle with Larry. I mean, the, he was, the storytelling was so key to us, you know, as well as the coaching, uh, because every, every loss was a lesson, was a time to learn. And so, his patience with us. When he came to us, we were, you know, we we were young. You know, a lot of us, you know, weren't weren't even married, didn't have kids. And and we were like, you know, just up and down. You know, we we had the, you know, we had the highest scoring game in the history of the NBA, still have it, you know, under him. And he slowly transitioned us to a defensive juggernaut. But also, he slowly transitioned us from young men to men and adults, and 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 was able to treat us that way along the way. So, I mean, he was he was masterful in terms of watching us grow, helping us grow, holding the reins, then letting them go as we matured. Uh, and as you say, you know, when we when he came over from Cleveland, I think he had just got fired. He was like nine and 32 in Cleveland. And yeah. he came to our team and, you know, the, the magic happened. So do you think that yeah, I, that was kind of the, go ahead, Keith. I, I just, if I could just ask one more follow-up to that season. Uh, were you aware that, as, as we all know, Chuck Daly is a defensive minded coach. He, he's always stressed defense in, in every, in front of every microphone he's ever been in in front of but that that one season that first season you mentioned that 186 184 game but you guys uh, to this day that season averaged more points per possession than any Detroit Pistons team ever before or since to this day like you, you you guys had the top offense in the NBA in a league with you know Birds Celtics and Magic yeah. Lakers in their prime yeah. I, I was just I always wondered if that kind of frustrated him, but at the same time, he had to work with what he had. And it was you and a bunch of guys that were, were scores, to be honest. Yeah. So I, 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 and, and I always wondered to this day, um, like people don't really recognize like what Isaiah Thomas could do, you know, in an up-tempo offense, because all anyone talks about is the bad boys, but you, you could really uh, quarterback a, uh, an up-tempo offensive team with the best of them. 
Yeah, so I, this is this is where Chuck and I really meshed because, you know, my my high school team was the best high, high, high defensive high school team in the state. My college team was the best defensive college team in in the NC2A tournament. Um, I've always been rooted in defense, and and of course, you know, being a good defensive player, you you learn how to play offense too, right? So being balanced on both sides of the ball is is what I always strive for in terms of that type of perfection. Um, and but to be competitive in a league when you didn't have the talent that everyone else had, you had to keep up scoring wise. So this is where Chuck and I really understood each other like, okay, look, we, we, we have to score the basketball. We have to keep up because if we, we're not, we don't have the players that's going to stop Kareem. We don't have the players that's going to stop, you know, Bird and Mikhail, right? We, we don't have those type of defensive stoppers, but what we can do is I can keep us in the game scoring wise by helping everybody else score. Right. And as we develop and grew, then we start, and this is where, you know, Mr. D, Jack McClaskey, Chuck Daly, and I, we were all on the same page. How do we transition from being an offensive juggernaut to a defensive juggernaut? And that's what we became. And I'll tell you a story here that, that, that not many people know that, that hasn't been told. Uh, you know, Chuck Daly was fired from the Detroit Pistons. And... And I'll never forget, you know, Jack, Jack McCloskey fired him. This was early in the season. We had lost um, 15 out of 19. I'm not sure what year it was. It could have been 86 or. I know 86, it... you guys had a losing record for a while until Joe okay. started. The 86, uh, we had lost 15 out of 19. And Chuck Daly got fired that afternoon. And. And I never forget. I, I drove, I drove to Mr. D's house, and I said, "We're making a huge mistake." And he goes, "What do you mean?" I go, "We, this isn't the coach's fault." I said, "We don't, we don't have the type of talent to compete the way everybody thinks we we should." And if we lose this coach, I don't think we'll ever win here. And he said, "Do you think Chuck Daly is that good?" I go, absolutely. I think he's the perfect coach for us. And then I called up Chuck and I said, do you, do you want your job back? And he goes, you know, he was in a, he was in a, you know, pissy yeah. mood. He goes, yeah. What do you mean? Do I want my job back? Yeah. So we met at the McDonald's on Orchard Lake. <laughs> I met, I met, I met him at the McDonald's on Orchard Lake. And um, there was, uh, he and I, you know, we just talked and, and then Mr. D like, you know, called, um, I think he called Jack and said, hey, we're hiring him back. And Chuck Daly got his job back. And the next day, you know, we started turning things around. Wow. Would you, would you happen to remember the most important McDonald's order in Pistons history? Or do you remember what you got that day? Oh, 
had to have been a Big Mac, right? You walked in there, uh, Big Mac, I'm going to save this man's job. <laughs> Two cheeseburgers, a large fry, and a vanilla milkshake. <laughs> the, the, the regular cheeseburgers, not the right. quarter pound. Yeah. Yep. Two cheeseburgers, large fry, and a vanilla milkshake. <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, so, so it, you, you mentioned, you know, that the team needed more, more talent to compete. And then that next year, that's when Sally comes in Rodman, Adrian Dantley, um, you know, were, do you, were you kind of a part of that? And do you remember, you know, what it was like having Dantley and Rodman and Sally there and how much impact those guys made? Yeah. D D defensively we we had to make a, a change uh we we had we season before that we had lost to the new york knicks and bernard king um uh, you know he has he averaged 40 on us and and back then the small forward position was like the yeah. position right all offenses were ran to make that small forward position like the the juggernaut spot and uh, the next year, we make the playoffs again, and we lose to Atlanta, and Dominique averages 40 on us. <clears throat> so now it's like, okay, and, and Kelly Trapuca, you know, I, I actually lived with him, right? He, he, he was my roommate for a while, and, you know, but, you know, his, his idea was they score, I score. They score, I score. They get 40, I get 40, and we eat. And I was like, no, we can't win that way. We, we got to stop the other team from scoring. Uh, so we ended up trading Kelly for Dentley. <clears throat> Sally and Rodman come. And when Sally and Rodman come, then our shot blocking goes up. Our shot blocking and our defense. So to, to be a great basketball team and win championships, what I've always been taught, you got to have rebounding, you got to have shot blocking, and you got to have, you got to be able to get out and transition and score the basketball. So after you deep, after you get a stop, you rebound, then you got to get out and score. Well, Sally and Rodman, they came in with incredible speed, and then they came in as, you know, two great shot blockers, you know, along with Danley. Then Mahorn comes, and, you know, so – we, we go from being great offensively to now, you know, superior defensively. And there's one thing that I do understand. I, I don't know how to win as well just outscoring you. Yeah. But as a – I know how to win games when I can stop you. I know how to scheme defensively to make sure that – we end up winning the basketball game and you lose the basketball game. So that team fell right into my comfort zone from high school to college. Now I got an NBA team that's a defensive juggernaut. I know how to manage that team and win. Yeah, I think that's kind of the sad irony in that as, as the team started go, going from good to, to really good to contenders, your individually, your numbers took a little bit of a dip and your your accolades, because you were an all-NBA player from your second year to I think it was your sixth year. And then as soon as you made the conference finals, never again. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, it to me, that's kind of unheard of because usually guys that are on championship teams, 
get that credit for for sacrificing their statistics. And even though you you were still in the All Star game every year, it, it always kind of felt weird to me that they didn't recognize you anymore when you were winning championships as one of the one of the elite players of, of the game. I don't. I mean, maybe you don't feel that way. That's just how it appeared to me. No, I I, I so there's there's recognition inside of the of the sport, and then there's recognition by the media who vote. And so inside the sport, highly, you know, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, decorated. Uh, so during that period of time, and I, and I remember talking to our team about this, um, and I, I, I had several team meetings about, you know, the criteria of judgment that the NBA was judging players on media-wise if we try to win that way, we can't win as a basketball team because the, the criteria was set up in such a way that if you were 6'6 six, six and taller, the things that they measured were, were so against small players, like field goal percentage, like field goal percentage, rebounding, uh, shot blocking during that period of time, that those were the measurements, right? And and so I'm saying, look, we we're a jump shooting team. We're never going to shoot 55 percent from the field. I'm never gonna, you know, I'm right. never gonna be in the in the in the fifties or the high fifties, right? Dumars, you never, you know, Vinny Lambeer, it's just not going to happen for us. So the way we have to be stubborn enough to understand that this formula that they've presented on how you win doesn't apply to us. And, and we're going to go and be so against the grain that maybe people won't understand what we're doing, but the bottom line is their team is going to lose and our team is going to win when we leave the floor. This formula works for us, but we can't judge ourselves. Lambeer, you know, if you try to shoot, you know, 60% from the field and, you know, be Kareem and be Robert, that, that's not going to happen. That's not how we play. So what is the formula and criteria of measurement for how we win as a Detroit Piston bad boy team? How do we win? What's our criteria? What's our formula? and forget what somebody else's formula and measurement is. That was, um, you know, that, and we, we talk about belief, right? We had yeah. to sell that within the team. And that's where Dantley and, and, and our team kind of, you know, went separate ways because he was of the belief that you got to get the numbers, this formula works and it works for, for him, but, it didn't work for Dennis Rodman, right? Dennis Rodman was playing behind Adrian Dantley. And every time you put it, Dennis Rodman in, it was like, this dude was getting like 16 rebounds in like 12 minutes. It was yeah. crazy. So he needed more time. But if he would have got more time with Dantley, then it would have hurt Dantley's numbers. And, you know, we were a team that didn't play for the numbers. Yeah, is there any 
and, and again, I, I I get that Adrian Danley kind of made his own bed. But is there any kind of regret? Because you guys came. People always tell me that you can't, you couldn't win with Adrian Danley, which was completely false because you were one phantom foul away from winning a championship with Adrian Danley. It's just I think the dynamic changed after that season. But because I, I remember how both you and Adrian, as as being leaders of the team, as well as everybody else. You guys fought so hard in the, that 87 and 88 season. Is there any kind of regret that, like, he couldn't finish the job? I know it was great to play with with Mark Aguirre, yeah. who was your close friend. Uh, but is there any regret that um, Adrian Dantley was never a, a part of the finished product? You, you know, for us, I think 87, 88, 89, 90, those four years, we felt that we were the best team in the NBA. And Adrian was a big part of that. Uh, and, you know, we had such bad luck. You know, game five, I throw the ball away. Game seven, you know, he and Vinny Johnson collide heads. And then we get to the finals. Uh, and, you know, there's the phantom foul. You know, so that, that run, that period of time, we felt that we were the best team and we never got a championship. Now coming back, you know, after, after, after 88, uh, Rodman got better. And not only did Rodman get better, but Dumars was getting better. So our whole offense had to change, right? We, we had to incorporate Joe. You know, it, it, it couldn't just be, we're gonna throw it to Adrian and then everybody runs to the other side of the court, right? We had, you know, you got you got a Dumars developing, you got a Rodman developing, and these are things that you want in your basketball team. Now, all of that happening, there was another thing happening. There was a team called the Cleveland Cavaliers where Ron Harper was getting better. Mark Price was getting better. Brad Doherty had got better. Larry Nance was better. John Hot Rod Williams was better. And people don't remember this, but when we made the trade for Mark Aguirre to Adrian Danley in late February, I think we were six games behind Cleveland. And they had beaten you three times. Yes. <laughs> we were so you know that and, and this is this is the this is the beauty of the NBA. Every year, you got to get better. Your game's got to improve because there's some team or there's somebody coming behind. And we had we had maxed out on that team. And so we make the trade for Aguirre. Now, Aguirre coming over, leaving the Dallas team where he's averaging 26 points a night, playing 37, 38 minutes a night. He comes to Detroit makes the throws away a Hall of Fame career. Mark Aguirre, if Mark Aguirre would have kept putting up numbers like he was in Dallas, and this is where the, the formula is so screwed up, and it really does punish people who try to win. If Mark Aguirre would have kept averaging 25 points, 26 points in Dallas, he'd be in the Hall of Fame right now, right? Because his numbers would say he's in the Hall of Fame. Mark Aguirre comes to Detroit, and he sees Dennis Rodman and he goes, hey, this guy's pretty good. He needs to play more. So instead of me playing 35 minutes, 
I'll play 24 minutes. Rodman, you can play 24 minutes. And our team is going to be better because of that. Keyword, our team is going to be better because of that. Mark Aguirre comes to our team, 41 games. We go 37 and four. I'm going to say that again. Yeah. We go, we go 37 and four. <laughs> That's a crazy number. Yeah, and you go you go from being down six games to the Cavs to winning the division by four or five games. Yeah, yeah, it was just, just an incredible run. But um, you you mentioned perception earlier and how screwed up the formula of what people consider the formula for success. I always wondered that that the documentary, not the documentary, not the Jordan one, the the Bad Boys Thirty for Thirty documentary, because that's kind of the reason yeah. I I started my entire Twitter account. Because I thought that documentary raised the the public consciousness to to the bad boys and, and and put them out there, but I think at the same time, I think it kind of sensationalized the the physical play. Like it's not that you guys weren't physical; you you were, yeah. but it's like every other play in the documentary is a hard foul. And yeah. I wanted to, and and part of why I started my my Twitter account was to show that th- no, these were really skilled teams. That the, the physical play was was just a part of it. But uh, my question to you is, do you think that documentary has has helped or hurt uh, the perception of your championship teams over the years? I, I, I honestly think it's helped because the narrative was so was so far out of touch in terms of who we really were, right? The, the documentary, I think, made a, a generation, a younger generation, at least curious, right? Yeah. And and the curiosity factor, you know, has brought into research. And because you were curious, now you're researching. And now you, you and I meet because you're a historian and 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 you're on Twitter and you you're giving facts. So I stopped following you because you were saying that hey, these were good basketball players. And and then you started showing film clips of how yeah. we really played. And, and now I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's how we play. We, you know, they're, you know, they're, how about this? We played against the LA Lakers. We played against the Portland Trailblazers. We played, you know, the sub. There's only one team that's ever really complained about us fouling hard. And I ain't going to even say their name, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but every, during that period of time, everybody fouled hard. And, and I would say from, from, from 81 or from, yeah, from 81 to 94, there is no player in the NBA that got hit or fouled harder than Isaiah Thomas. And I got the scars to show it. But what I didn't do, I didn't complain, I didn't cry, I, you know, I would get up, go to fight, because that's 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 how the game was. And but I but back to your question in terms of did the doc help? I think it helped because it made people curious. And now when people watch us play, we're starting we we are starting to get credit for the influence that we've really had on the game that everybody else has copied but didn't want to give credit to, to us. It's like, I, I smile when I, I look at all, when I hear all these six, one guys talk about 
They say, who who's your favorite player growing up? Oh, I, I love Magic. I love, you know, Jordan. I love, but then I watch him play. And shit, you play just like I did. <laughs> so, so how can you say those were the guys that you imitated, but you played nothing like them? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, what one point on that? Speaking of Cleveland, I always thought it was kind of fun. Uh, and we we're gonna stay clear of that, the, the Jordan documentary, but I thought it was interesting that like, he averaged more fouls, more free throws against Cleveland than he ever did against you guys. <laughs> so it was like yeah, like, yeah, part of the game plan is, yeah, if he gets past A, B, and C, yeah, you commit a foul. But the point is not to foul. Like, the point is yeah. not to let him get into the paint where he can draw fouls. Like, yeah. that was the entire point of the, the whole Jordan rules thing. It wasn't, let's send Michael Jordan to the hospital. That never happened. Yeah, we we were, so schematically, as I said, defensively, and this is where you have to really look at my my high school teams, my college teams. Hey, I, I still think we hold the record in the NC2A tournament uh, for the team with the most double-digit wins. I think Connecticut may have come close this year. But, you know, we, we won every game by, you know, 13 or more. Our closest game with Carolina, we held them to 50 points, beat them 63 to 50. Uh, and in that same tournament, we scored 99 points against Maryland. So we... We could do we could do both, just like when you look at our, our championship runs, we scored the basketball, but we also stopped people from scoring. Schematically, all Jordan rules were we would find his weakness. What was his weakness, right? He he had difficulty going left, right? So we were forced, not that he couldn't go left, he was better going right. So you sent him to his left, you double team. And if he got past that, what did you do? as opposed to letting him dunk and get two points, then you foul and send him to the line. So you're playing the percentage. You're playing the numbers. You know, is it is it better for somebody to have two points or do you take the chance that they're, you know, shooting 75, 86% from the line? They may miss one. Every point counts. That's when you're playing defense. That's how you're scheming. That's how you're thinking. That's how you're playing. And we were we were so far we were so far ahead of where the rest of the league eventually caught up to right we were talking points per possession way before it got into the into the general public right in terms of how do you control tempo how do you score every time down court how do you get a good shot how do you stop your opponent from getting a good shot that's what we were intellectually psychologically and as you said, Cleveland fouled them more than we did. <laughs> uh, we just, just got a couple more here for you, Isaiah. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, you're still very in, involved with the NBA and, uh, and, and you, I'm sure you watch more NBA than we could all possibly imagine. What, uh, what do you think that, you know, this current Pistons team is needs to, to become, you know, uh, the next version of the bad boys or the going to work team. Uh, what what does this team need to 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 advance to that next level? I, I'm excited for them. Um, I, I think they got young talent. I think they got young good talent. And uh, you know, I I just think that you know they need help, right? And if if they're healthy, and and K comes back, 
you know, I, I, I see them taking a, a big jump and, and I'm hoping that they take a big jump uh, because, you know, the, the Pistons, that, that's in our DNA, right? And we, we want them to do well. And uh, I, I think the league needs them to do well, you know? So I, I expect them to, to play good. I expect them to have a, a good year. Okay. Well, well, we'll, we'll hope so. Um, last question for you here. Uh, this is kind of a, this is a big thing for me here. Um, so after, after you guys won your first championship, you were asked in the locker room how it felt. And I don't know if you remember what you said, but you said it was like the Ohio players. Yeah. Heaven, <laughs> heaven must be like this. So when I'm a kid, you know, that's introduced me to the Ohio <laughs> players and, and, um, you know, in, in a lot of groups and singers in, in of that era. And, and that music has, you know, that, that, that time period of music and that, that genre of music has become uh, a big deal to me. So I'm, I'm kind of curious is uh, you got any more recommendations? <laughs> you, you know, off the top of my head right now, you know, earth, earth wind and fire back, 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 Back in that time, right? Earth, Wind, and Fire, Ohio play. Their music was just so. It, it just spoke to your soul. It spoke to your. It spoke to who you were, what you were trying to be. You know what you were trying to become. And 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 then when you get there, right? It's like when they asked me, it's like, how does it feel? I didn't have it planned. It was like it, it just feel like heaven. And Ohio players came, but you know, let me see if I was. If I was uh, gonna give you one, uh, what would be my earth, wind and fire one? I would say uh, gratitude and that's the way of the world. Okay. For, yes. for me, for, for me, it's, uh, it, it's love's holiday. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> and, that's a good one too. And, and love is uh, written in the stone. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And be what, ever wonderful. Yes. 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 The reasons, of course. You can't forget reasons. Yes. Uh, now, yeah. Reasons was one of those songs I always tried to figure out. But then I was like, is he saying what I think he's saying? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, back then, uh, you know, you used to slow dance. You know, yeah. you would go to a party and you would slow dance. Yeah. Whenever that, whenever that reason song came on, right, and you would ask a girl to dance, they would look you up and down. They'd be like, "Nah, not you." <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, man, that is that is awesome. I thank you so much for joining us, Isaiah. Yeah. This hey, is yeah, this has been great. Big, yeah, it's been great for me too. Yeah, we we really enjoyed everything that you did for the city and and uh, and any every everything that you continue to do for the city and we love watching you on NBA TV and um yeah thank you so much for for joining us is there anything that you want to uh, plug on the show or talk about or no I I well there's two things I want to plug first I want to plug Detroit right and and I and I say this all the time like we we don't get enough credit in Detroit for what Detroit really stands for in the world, right? And here are the changes. When you go outside and you get in your car, no matter what country you live in, you say in Detroit. When you listen to your music, 
no matter what country you live in, you got that Motown sound, right? And, and when you talk basketball now, no matter what little guard you see playing, no matter what defensive style you see, no matter how they talk in language on TV and everything else, it is coming back to Detroit. The people who are on TV talking about the game are from Detroit. The people who are influencing the game are from Detroit. So let it be known that Detroit and the influence that we've had, not only on the world, but on sport, you know, stick your chest out, right? That, I, I rep Detroit hard. And the other thing I would say, original bad boy t-shirts, Mitchell and Ness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to, I'm going to buy one of those as soon yeah. as we get off the air. That, that is just, I love that t-shirt. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. those, those old eighties championship uh, shirts that they released of you guys with all, where you guys all had the big heads and the little. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, but we, um, you know, did, you know, Detroit, stand tall and stand proud because we've we've left a we've left a uh, a mark on on the world and on the sports world like no other city. And 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 how about this? Right now we got, I think we got four or five owners from Michigan. Yeah, Ispia, Gores. Gilbert, Balmer, DeVos. Come on, now. What? what We're what taking over. All the owners. One out of every six owners. Come on, now. Now, now you can do it. Talk to me. Talk to me. Yep. We're taking over. Taking over. Yeah. Holy. No, we we already took over. We just had to be. They've been telling you that somebody else running it. <laughs> <laughs> when all the time it's been Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned, you know, people from from Michigan on TV, Jalen Rose, Steve Smith. I mean, all these guys. They're, it, they're the best in the business. You. <laughs> so I'm just saying. Yeah, we, in, we, including, we, including including Grant Hill, friend of the show, Grant, not from yep. Michigan, actually spent most of his college years beating up Michigan. <laughs> but at the same time, he has a lot of ties uh is detroiters we as detroiters we proudly claim him yes we claim him absolutely <laughs> and he claims us yeah he does. <laughs> yeah so, he still has a lot of love for the city and uh yeah he talked about that when he was on on with us as well um but again thank you so much isaiah for for joining us and uh thanks for everybody for listening and next week we will be back doing the 2011 nba draft we'll see you then all right, fellas.